So my name is Tom Nelson. Welcome to the Libra Campus. And it's a really beautiful day. You know, spring is, uh, I think, almost here. So I noticed uh, first service people were more upbeat this morning. So I hope you're upbeat. You know, I hear there may be snow or something coming, but it's just a little bit, I think. So, <laughs> so again, we're glad you're here and I uh, hope you sense the Lord's presence here. Uh, after law school, Gary Haugen found himself in a very important place in Washington, D.C. Uh, he was a young, aspiring lawyer in the uh, Justice Department of the most powerful nation on earth. And as Gary tells the story, in 1994, his life radically changed because he was asked by the United Nations Commission on Human Rights to investigate on the field the genocide in Rwanda. It is stunning to me when you listen to Gary talk and you read what he has written to imagine that authorities now estimate in 100 days somewhere between 800 and 900,000 people were slaughtered in this genocide. And Gary was so overwhelmed as he followed the footprints of evil on this land. His heart, as he describes it, was undone. And he founded what is now known as the International Justice Mission, committed to protect the most vulnerable and to rescue the oppressed. Some of you probably are aware that Gary Haugen came to speak to Christ's community just a few years ago. In fact, he stood right here. He gave us a very challenging message for all of us. He challenged us to see the world through Jesus' eyes. And he raised this question that I want to raise with you this morning. It is the question of the book of Nehemiah. And that is, Gary leaned out over this space and he said, will you live safe or will you live brave? This is the question we must ask ourselves in the day in which we live of so much brokenness. This week has been a hard week for our nation, hasn't it? We have witnessed a lot of destruction and evil. We have seen the terrorist attack in Boston. And one of the things that stood out to me was this picture of this man who was right next to where the bomb was placed, or at least one of them. His name was Carlos Arendando. And rather than leaving the scene when the first bomb blew very near, he went back to rescue some of the people whose life were on the line. And his story is really powerful because recently he had contemplated committing suicide. His oldest son, I think his oldest son died in Iraq. Another one committed suicide. And yet here he is choosing to live brave rather than safe. It is often said that there are three kinds of people in the world, rather tongue-in-cheek, those who make things happen, those who have things happen to them, and those who look around and say, what on earth happened? (laughs) But I want to suggest to you there really are two kinds of people in the world, those who gaze at rubble, the rubble of brokenness, and those who rebuild walls of restoration. So our question this morning is a probing one, and that is, will we be rubble gazers or wall builders? 
Well, you and I, in this moment of so much brokenness in the world, will we choose to live safe? Or will we choose to live brave? The brokenness is all around us, but do we see it? There's a terrorist attack in the news, the barbaric butchery of an abortionist like Dr. Gosnell. If you followed that story, it's hard to read. A crumbling, crime-infested Kansas City neighborhood. Thousands and thousands of precious young girls enslaved in the sex trade in Thailand in a sex brothel. How do we respond to the world in which we live? Will we respond with a kind of numbing indifference or compassionate engagement? One of the most damnable lies of the evil one is that you and I really can't make a difference in the world. But the story of Nehemiah tells another story. It is that you and I can make a difference and we must make a difference in being restorers of the rubble of brokenness in our world. Nehemiah is a book named after an individual. I find that important. An individual who made a difference, who chose to live brave rather than safe in a broken world. So I'm very excited to enter into this story with you this morning. As Pastor Andrew said, the next four weeks we're going to drop down in this text a bit to let it marinate in our souls. So if you have your Bible open, I'd like you to turn or have it with you. Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 1. At Christ's community, we want to enter into the story of Scripture, and so I'd like to set the context briefly for us. Whether you have a Bible background or you're new to the Bible, understanding the integrity of the story is, is, it is in a time in Israel's history and in historical context. It is a time in Israel history called the post-exile. When God's people, last week we uncovered in Second Chronicles and Second Kings, that God's people were facing judgment, the judgment of God. But the judgment of God does not mean God abandoned them. He corrected them. So they are in Babylon. Jerusalem is sacked. There's a timeline here. If you notice 586, Jerusalem is sacked by the Babylonians. There's actually three waves, 606 to 586, and it is obliterated to smithereens. Some of the people who survive are hauled into Babylon during this time. Uh, Babylon is taken over by the Persian Empire. And the Persian Empire has a bit of a different posture towards God's covenant people. And after 70 years in exile, it's called the exilic period, Cyrus the Persian gives in history what is famously known as the Edict of Toleration, 539 B.C. He allows the Jewish people to go back to Jerusalem and to Israel. You can see the waves. There's different migrations of waves to rebuild their country. So we enter into Nehemiah during this time, and Nehemiah's time is 445 as Nehemiah opens up this book. What is so important is not just dates that are sort of pedantic or indifferent. They are really central to the story because when we understand as we enter into Nehemiah's story for over a hundred years, from 539 to 544, God's covenant people are let back into the land, but all they do is look at rubble. And the rubble just keeps building and building and building until they're suffocating in it. And they become rubble gazers when God called them to be wall builders. So here we enter into Nehemiah's world. Nehemiah, the book, literarily, is structured in a beautiful way of symmetry. 
The book, 13 chapters, that we are going to explore in the next four weeks follows this trajectory. A broken city, a burdened heart, and bold faith that then leads to grand restoration. So chapters 1 and 2, which we're going to dive into this morning, really sets the template for the whole trajectory of the book. So if you're following along or you're taking notes or putting this in your brain, the flow this morning is the flow of the whole book, but it is modeled first in chapters 1 and 2. We have a broken city, a burdened heart, and bold faith. Okay, so let's dive in. What we have to see here is that we have a broken, broken city, and this is how the text opens up. We're introduced to Nehemiah. His name means the comfort of God, and that is going to be important because his name will show us that God brings comfort to his people and will point us to the one, ultimately, Messiah who will bring us comfort. But keep that in mind as we explore, okay, that Nehemiah means the comfort of God, and he will bring comfort by his obedient faith and courage to rebuild a people and a place. Notice also, if you have your Bible open, the first opening setting of Nehemiah sets us in the month of Kislev. We don't use that word very much anymore. It's an old calendar. It's the winter of 445 B.C. So Nehemiah wants to know. He lived in history. It is set in time and space. Um, And he's also welcoming us to his world. Now, you'll notice the word Susa. Reminds me of Dr. Seuss. I don't know why I'm kind of into that, but Susa is the capital uh, of the Persian Empire. It's like the Washington, D.C. It's a place of power and privilege. And here Nehemiah finds himself in a place of comfort, power, and privilege. That's important for the story. So all of a sudden, Nehemiah tells us that one day, you can imagine if you would walk back with me to this century, Nehemiah is in this comfortable place of power in Persia with the kings, uh, doing his thing, and his relatives show up. Now, I don't know uh, what happens when your relatives show up unannounced. You know, that can be a a moment of great delight, your greatest dream come true, or let's face it, it can be your gravest nightmare. I don't know exactly what it was, but when I read this text, my mind goes to my favorite Christmas movie. I'm sure yours has, just sitting there. And that is National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. You love that movie? It's awesome. One of my favorite moments is when Clark Griswold, at his door, knock, 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 is his relatives from, of all places, Kansas. Yeah. I mean, we don't get any respect. It is brutal. But Eddie and his family, you know, in their broken down RV, you get the picture, destroy their Christmas. But I don't think that's what Nehemiah is saying here. I think this is a heart-stopping moment of delight. Hanani is probably most likely his blood brother or very closely related. And the text tells us that Hanani, which means the grace of God, shows up to, to see his brother he hasn't seen for a long time. So I can imagine Nehemiah inviting him to this nice palatial place, uh, sit down for a cup of tea, and they catch up. The conversation is really exciting until it transforms from sublime joy to sober shock. And Nehemiah invites us into this moment that shocks him. Look at verse 3. If you have your Bible open. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Nehemiah had left his homeland 
his heritage. But his homeland had never left his heart. Nehemiah's heart is arrested here by the God of heaven. It is arrested around two realities as Hanani paints this vivid picture that grabs his heart, not only of a broken people, but a broken place because God cares for both and wants to restore both. Notice the text. Hebrew language is very emotive. It is designed to grab Hanani's heart and Nehemiah's heart. The word in English is trouble and shame. It has this picture of being physically uh, desperate and emotionally fragile with no hope. But notice also, it's not just the people, it is the place. Because Nehemiah will say, or Hanani will say to Nehemiah, the gates have been reduced to ashes. Now, what is going on here? Gates in this ancient time of these ancient cities was what allowed people to sleep at night, <laughs> like an alarm system or a lock on your door. And uh, a lot of bad things happen at night when there's not security. So what Hanani is saying to ne- Nehemiah is the people are completely vulnerable at night and they're exposed to all kinds of evil. The gates are just rubble. So how does Nehemiah respond? And throughout the whole book, you sense the passion of his heart. He is burdened. Look with me at verse 4. As soon, notice he doesn't say, I'm I'm busy, I'll get to you later. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. See, what happens when the eyes of our heart are open to the brokenness of our world around us? The God of heaven arrests our heart. A heart becomes undone. This text screams emotion to us and passion to us. Where does a heart that is undone go? By the brokenness of the world. It goes to the only person that can restore it, God himself. What does a heart undone do before God? Here we have it. When your heart is undone before a holy God and the brokenness of the world or your world or your life, there is a response. And Nehemiah's response is to weep. This word weep is intense. It's not just a trickle of tears. It is being undone. It fasts, it prays. It is not incidental that the story of Nehemiah begins with his passionate prayer because when we look in the heart of Nehemiah, we see who he really is and the window to his soul is wide open. This week, I encourage you to read this prayer more carefully, but let me highlight just a couple things about it. You will notice three nuances of his prayer because his prayer sets the trajectory of the book and one of the common threads throughout the whole book is Nehemiah's prayer. What you see here is passion. Nehemiah's prayer is not a perfunctory, oh, God, help us. It's like, oh! There are like exclamation points in the Hebrew language all over here, italicized, bold. He is passionately pouring his heart out to God. He says, God, only you can restore this. Only you can do this. I can't do this. Secondly, notice his transparency. I love how Eugene Peterson 
trans, uh, um, not translates, but paraphrases verse 7. He confesses his sin and the sins of his people. And Eugene Peterson says this. He says, we've treated you, God, like dirt. Notice the rubble, dirt idea. I love that. And notice also in his prayer, as you read it, the expectation. He says, God, you promised. You've delivered us in the past. And then he says at the very end, give me success. There's an expectancy of his prayer. What we must grasp is this. Prayer is Nehemiah's first resort, not last. He doesn't go and do a blog and all all the brokenness in the world. He goes to God first. And that's the key to this book. It's the key to the story. There's fresh wind, fresh fire. Prayer is the connecting thread. And before we rebuild walls, we have to hit our knees. Someone said, our knees don't knock when we kneel on them. I like that. How do you explain the extraordinary courage and bold faith of Nehemiah? Verse one, or chapter 1 gives us the seedbed of his heart. See, what we must grasp is repentance comes before restoration. Whether that is in your life and your broken life or my broken life or a broken city or a broken nation or a broken world. Recently, we had a wonderful conference at Christ Community. Many of you participated. It was called CG 2013, which means the common good. There was a moment for me that was really powerful. And that was in one of the breakouts at Southwest High School next to our Brookside campus. Four of our superintendents of our largest school systems in Kansas City shared about their world. The one that grabbed me the most... I've never met her. I don't know her worldview. I don't know anybody. Is Dr. Cynthia Lane. She is the superintendent of Kansas City, Kansas, a predominantly urban school system. She described what it was like for her staff to try to educate all these precious little children who come from broken homes and crumbling neighborhoods of a declining culture and broken families. Can you imagine in her school system, and this is wonderful but challenging, the kids from elementary on speak 65 different native languages. She said 89% of our students are so impoverished that they have free lunches. 89%. And as I listened, it was as if the Spirit of God just brought to my mind red and yellow Black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. And I found myself asking God, what do I do? What do we do? See, there's a subtle danger for all of us to live very comfortable lives. Sometimes I'm just overwhelmed with compassion, fatigue, and brokenness, aren't you? Sometimes I just want to sort of dismiss it and just say that's just the way it is. I can't do anything about it. Someone else has got to do it. I already have so much stuff going on in my life. But do we see the rubble of brokenness around us? And do we feel the weight of the rubble? Do we feel Christ's love for his broken world? 
Alan Redpath is a brilliant scholar and unpacks this text. And I think he says it beautifully. He says, you never lighten the load unless first you have felt the pressure in your own soul. You've got to read Nehemiah with this kind of soul pressure. Nehemiah is undone with the brokenness of his people and the world. This chapter 1 concludes, isn't it amazing this little phrase is the hinge in the story? <laughs> it's, just, it's brilliant from a literary standpoint, but from a storytelling. And now, he says, after all this, I was cupbearer to the king. Now, we don't really use that language very much. You know, it like, sounds like a barista at a Starbucks. What's this cupbearer deal? Or maybe I think someone waiting at a restaurant serving wine or something. But the way to look at it is, in the ancient Middle East, how did you destroy a king? Oh, you can march in armies on the, on, on the, the city, but one of the best ways is to poison them. So historically, that was where the name came from. And so the cupbearer was sort of the final defense. But really the idea here, imagine today, imagine President Obama... <clears throat> And imagine one individual being a heartbeat away from him that is both his chief of staff and the head of secret service. In other words, God has placed Nehemiah a heartbeat away from the most powerful earthly king. Amazing. And Nehemiah tells us this. In other words... If we read chapter 1, as we transition to chapter 2, we know that Nehemiah served the king of kings, lord of lords, the sovereign God. His name tells us his parents gave it to him. He comes from a godly family in Persia, a Jewish family. He knew that God was sovereign. All woven through this wonderful book. He knew that God had placed him there. He knew he was like this little turtle on a fence post sitting right there. He knew he didn't get up there by himself. God put him there. Mark Twain has been said to have said this, and I don't think it's apocryphal in my research. He said, the two most important days of your life are the day you were born, and secondly, the day you find out why. From chapter one to chapter two, there's four months of seeking God And God tells Nehemiah, why? That question is answered. As we enter into chapter 2, Nehemiah finds out why he's born. And he invites you and me as the reader to look over his shoulder and experience with him a day that changed his life forever. It is heart-stopping. It is heart-arresting. Look at at verses 1 through 4. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness or evil of heart, depending on your translation here. I'd choose evil. Then, Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid. Don't miss that. Because courageous faith does not dismiss fear. It doesn't stop fear in its tracks. Courageous faith leaps over fear. 
Now notice what he says. I said to the king, and he is scared spitless here. He's laying everything on the line. No question. Let the king live forever. That's what I'd do. <laughs> Would you? Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in real? Let's stop right there. What's Nehemiah doing? In the Middle East, across religions, Zoroastrianism, and all kinds of religions and faith, one thing you didn't mess with were graves. So he is appealing to the king's sensibility, father's graves. There was nothing said to him from Hanani about that, right? And notice he says, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. There's not even gates, there's ashes. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? <laughs> and then I love this part. Don't you love this part? This is called the foxhole nanosecond prayer. You're good at that, right? I mean, you know, you're a student and you walk into your class, if it's college or high school, and a teacher pops a pop quiz on you, like, oh, God, help me, right? Never even studied, right? I've been there. Or you're facing, you go to work, and all of a sudden you face this rabid customer you got to deal with. It's like, oh, God, help me, right? Or pastors, of course, this never happens. It's, you know, we face a very angry parishioner. We say, oh, God, help me, right? Pastors use foxhole nanosecond prayers too. We're good at it. In fact, we use it a lot, but this is the picture. So he says, I pray to the God of heaven. Don't you love that? And out of this emerges this bold faith. Because we know this is even more of a long shot. If you look at Ezra chapter 4, 23, you know that this king had allowed them to start rebuilding earlier, but then he stopped it because of this rumor of rebellion. So this very same king had stopped this earlier, and Nehemiah knew it, and he had to get this king to change his previous edict. Kings just don't do that. So this is a long shot. And Nehemiah knows it. But he knows that God is in the specialty of changing hearts. Proverbs 21.1 says the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Nehemiah knew the king of kings. And I bet his heart was just pounding in his chest at this moment. Don't you love how the king opens the door for the big ask. <laughs> and, and Nehemiah shoots up his prayer. And you see in verses 5 through 9, if you look at this text this week a little more, I encourage you to the story. It's just riveting. Nehemiah's already planned it out. <laughs> he, he asked for the whole thing. Provisions like an unlimited visa card. Protection. Everything. The king goes, you got it, pal. Wow. And notice it wasn't just his persuasion. He says in the text, verse 8, the good hand of God was upon me. So he scoots off to Jerusalem, right? As our story continues. He's greeted by what I call the three stooges. You're going to hear more about them in the next few weeks. Listen to their names. You know, when you're obedient, when God's at work, there's opposition. Obedience leads to opposition often. Listen to the characters. You love their names. Sad ballot. I mean, doesn't that sound like a gnarly dude? Tobiah and Geshem. And we're going to hear a lot more about these characters. Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem, and one of the things, when you notice the story, is he gets on a horse at night. And the text has this picture. There's so many years of rubble, hundreds of years, 100 years of rubble, that he can hardly even maneuver his horse around all the rubble. That's bad. And I can imagine Nehemiah, can't you go in there thinking, 
oh my, what have I got myself into? This is just too much. Wouldn't you have been overwhelmed standing neck high in rubble? But he doesn't do that. He calls the troops together, all the people. He rallies them together. And in verses 17 through 18, look at it. He says, you see the trouble we're in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates are burned? Like, like they haven't seen it, right? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may lo- no longer suffer shame or derision. And then he says, I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let's do it. That's the idea. Let's rise and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Nehemiah's spark of faith and obedience ignited a people who had sat dormant looking at rubble for over a hundred years. That's how amazing this moment is. And the question emerging for us, I think right away in the story, is this. Are we rubble gazers or wall builders? Do we see the brokenness first within us? Before we focus on the brokenness outside, Nehemiah's story points us to Jesus Christ, the one who will weep over Jerusalem like he did, the one who would come to earth, who would shed his blood to give us forgiveness and new creation life and to restore us as new creations when we repent of our sin and embrace him by faith. Don't miss it that Nehemiah points to the one who will bring ultimate comfort and restore a broken creation. Do you know Christ? Nehemiah calls us to embrace Jesus. Only he can restore our brokenness. But it also, if we have entrusted Christ as our Savior and embraced the good news of the gospel, it raises three questions, I think, of profound application for us this morning. First is this. What has God placed in your heart? Do you notice that Nehemiah's story begins with God placing something in his heart? Notice chapter 2, verse 11. Nehemiah says, God, put this in my heart. See, none of us are called to address all the brokenness in the world, are we? But we are called to restore some brokenness, to be agents of redemption in the world, I love how U2's Bono describes his own passion for the AIDS epidemic in Africa. And he says, my work is, quote, to peel back a corner of the darkness. What is the corner of darkness God has put in your heart to peel back? What has God put in your heart? Secondly, where has God placed you? You will notice that the book of Nehemiah is centered in God's sovereign placement of Nehemiah. God had a work to do, and he had placed Nehemiah in a place he could do it. So you may not be the cupbearer to the king. You may not have a big position of privilege and power. Maybe you do. But wherever God has you, it is an important place. If you're younger and it's in a school classroom, or you're in a corporate office or a medical clinic or at home with your children or raising your grandchildren, Let me say the most important building of the wall of our culture and our world takes place where you have been called by God to work throughout the week. We often think that stewardship, faithful stewardship, is about what we do with our money. And that's important. But there is another stewardship that is very, very important in which we often do not think about. 
And it's a stewardship that one day God will ask us to give an account for, and that's our vocational stewardship. See, your work, whether it is paid or unpaid, is one of the most important stewardships of your life. And the vast majority of our wall-building work of redemption and restoration starts not in beginning a new organization. Maybe God will call you to do that. I don't know. But it is done brick by brick in your places of work and vocational calling. We're going to see more and more of that in the weeks ahead of Nehemiah. This week I had the joy of attending a luncheon in Kansas City that is put on for the City Union Mission that is designed to restore and rebuild the most broken in our city. Every year the City Union Mission luncheon is put on by a group of women, including my sweet bride Liz, that honor women who change the heart of the city. And this year three women were honored. One of those women is one of my quiet heroes in Kansas City. She's a woman who has been devoted to Christ and to her vocational stewardship as a psychiatrist, one of the finest in our country, who restores people's lives, physical, spiritually, and emotionally. Her name is rightly said, Grace, Dr. Grace Ketterman. She is one of the most amazing people. For over 50 years, she's 80 plus, 50 years she has been restoring people. She's been brick by brick rebuilding the walls of Kansas City and people's lives. And when she was interviewed by Elizabeth Alex about her life, she said, we are blessed to be a blessing to others. What a wall builder. At her age, she's not content to gaze at the rubble. She says, hand me another brick, hand me another brick. What is the next step God wants you to take? It may be stopping long enough to hear God's voice. Are you going to live fast or live deep? Jesus calls you to live deep. It's often said the humans are the only species on the planet that when they're lost, they run faster. Are you seeing the walls? Are you listening to God's heart? Are you seeing the brokenness of our city and our world? Perhaps for some of you this week, you are prodded by the Spirit to take a vision trip. Maybe not to another country, but to another neighborhood or or school in our city or to visit with one of our ministry partners. Families, maybe you're vacation with your kids might be in a place that exposes them to great need I don't know what God is saying to you this morning but will you listen to the Spirit's voice and hear the heart of God in the brokenness of our world Bob Pierce who founded World Vision an organization like IJM committed to the most vulnerable of our world like compassion. His prayer opened the soul of his life. And it has been recorded for us to hear. Bob Pierce said this prayer, Lord, break my heart with the things that break your heart. Maybe that's the most important application, the first step 
Spirit of God wants to challenge you and me with this morning. Maybe that's what God wants to say to you. Lord, break my heart with the things that break your heart. It has almost been a quarter of a century now. I guess my gray hair shows it. When Liz and I moved to Kansas City in a big old rider truck with our six-month-old Schaefer in tow. God put two things in our heart. First, we knew God was so big that nothing was impossible for him. We said to him, we're all in. Secondly, we knew that our nation and this city and our world was so broken and desperately in need of a spiritual awakening. So when we wrote the foundational documents that began Christ's community, in our blueprint, we wrote these words. We desire Christ's community to be a catalyst for spiritual awakening in our world. In fact, the very first message of 40 pioneers was Nehemiah chapter 1. The first series of Christ's community 24 years ago was Nehemiah. We have been called, this is our birthright, to be a church that does not just gaze at the rubble, but a catalytic wall-building congregation. Our elder leadership team has called us in this decade of deployment with these words. We believe we are designed to give ourselves away in our neighborhoods, our city, and our world. And one of the things most exciting to me is our multi-site strategy where God is allowing Christ's community in different places of our city to rebuild the wall there. There is so much brokenness around us, isn't there? But what will our response be? What will your response be? Will you be a rubble gazer or a wall builder? I say to you this morning, I want to be a wall builder. So hand me another brick. Let's not be safe. Let's be brave. Father, grasp our hearts, arrest our hearts with Christ's love for his broken world and fallen creation. Holy Spirit, wherever we are in our faith, whether we're newer to the faith, whether we're struggling about is this true, whether we've been a Christian a long time, or wherever we are, may we see you as the God who can heal brokenness. And may we be a conduit of restoration of gospel restoration to our broken city and our world. Oh, Lord God, do a new work in our lives, our congregation, our city, and our needy nation and our needy world for your glory. Build the walls. In Jesus' name.